are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, I invite you to turn with me this evening to the book of Exodus, the final verses in the book of Exodus. We will be looking at Exodus chapter 40, starting in verse 34. And this actually is the first sermon in a new series we're beginning through the book of Leviticus. But of course, you can't start in Leviticus. You have to start in Exodus. And so we'll be setting the stage for what's happening in Leviticus as we conclude Exodus this evening. In preparation, I said, well, maybe we should have started and done a whole series in Exodus we said, well, maybe we should do a whole series in Genesis to prepare for that. But no, we're going to start here and jump into Leviticus next time. But let us now hear God's word this evening from Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 to 38. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The grass withers, And the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I recently saw a meme online, and I'll do my best to explain and to to describe it to you this evening. This meme had a train coming down train tracks, and off on the side, there was a bus, an old rickety bus that was beginning to cross the train tracks. This was the first frame of the meme, and then the second meme of the frame of the meme, the train had begun crossing the tracks, was on the midpoint of the tracks, but bursting through the train, or the, the, the bus, was the train. The bus had crossed over, and the train had plowed right through it. And over top of the train was written Leviticus, and over top of the bus was written my annual Bible reading plan. I don't know if this is true of you, but it is kind of a standard trope that you start reading your Bible at the beginning of the year, try to make it through through the end of the year, but you come to this third book, Leviticus. For some reason, the Bible reading stops. Leviticus is thought of as this this, uh, difficult book, a, a, a secret book maybe, a book we don't quite understand what to do with it. But I do think we can begin to penetrate what's happening. And actually, as we begin to see what's going on in Leviticus... This is an entire world we're entering into to see the glory of Christ. But the problem is we don't understand the point of Leviticus. We don't really understand why it's in our Bible, what we're to learn from it, what it tells us about God, and how it connects to the rest of the story of Scripture. So that's why we're starting this evening in Exodus, because the end of Exodus sets the stage for the entire book of Leviticus. A problem is presented here at the end of the book that Leviticus steps in to answer. Leviticus falls in the middle of a narrative. Remember Israel's exodus and and journey into the promised land from Egypt. 
And to understand Leviticus, we come to, see this te- we come to this text to see what it tells us about Israel's story and ultimately about the story of all humanity. Leviticus provides the essential answer to the greatest problem facing humankind. Now, that's a big claim, but we will be unpacking this over approximately 16 sermons as we go through this book, hitting highlights, not going verse by verse every time, but hitting highlights throughout the book. But this evening, we're going to look at three points. First, Israel's problem. Second, humanity's problem. And then third, Leviticus's solution. Israel's problem, humanity's problem, and then Leviticus's solution. So let's first look back in Exodus here to look at Israel's problem. Leviticus actually begins, Leviticus 1.1, it begins in Hebrew with the word and. It begins, the English says, the Lord called Moses, but in Hebrew it actually is, and the Lord called Moses. It's It's a construction, a grammatical construction to indicate to you that this is the middle of a story. Leviticus starts with and to connect it to what came before. It's a chronological sequence of events that this construction, the Vav consecutive, if you're into Hebrew, that this construction is telling you. This is a sequence, a series of events. Leviticus begins not with a new topic, not with a, a new story, but in the middle of another story. And the Lord called Moses. And so we come back to Exodus, say, okay, where is Moses? What's happening? And we have to, I think, recap a little bit more about the bigger picture of Exodus. You remember what happened here? Israel, Jacob, in Genesis, and his 12 sons go down to Egypt because there's a famine in Canaan. And Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, helped get Egypt and his family through this famine because of his wise management. And so Israel stayed in Egypt after the famine, though. And for a while, they they grew and they grew. A new pharaoh came and years went by. And soon, Israel became a problem for Egypt. And Egypt decided to enslave Israel. And so that's where we pick up in the beginning of Exodus. Israel is in slavery in Egypt. And so Exodus is all about Israel leaving Egypt. You remember God calls Moses after he miraculously saved him. He, wrote, he grew up in Pharaoh's home. He was exiled from Egypt, but then God called him to be his spokesman to Israel and to Pharaoh. He was to be the mediator between God and Israel. He was their leader out of Egypt back into the promised land. So God called Moses. Moses goes to Egypt and says, for God, let my people go. And Pharaoh refused And there were plagues upon Egypt that came. And finally, after God struck down all of the firstborn of Egypt, Pharaoh relented and said, get out of here, go. I think one one thing we miss, though, oftentimes is why God wanted Israel to leave Egypt. God wanted them to leave so that they would worship him. So they would go into the wilderness and worship God. This is the whole point of Exodus. It was worship. Because after they leave Egypt, they go through the Red Sea. God destroys the Egyptians who end up uh, coming after Israel. Israel comes out. They go to the mountain, Mount Sinai. God gives them the law. God makes the covenant with Israel. And the rest of the book after the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant are instructions for worship. It's mostly about how to build a tabernacle. 
how to build this tent of meeting, as it's often called, this tent where God will come and meet with his people. So Exodus is all about Israel leaving Egypt to go worship God. And you you know, if you've read the book of Exodus, there's chapter after chapter of explanation, of, of description of how God wanted them to build the tabernacle chapter after chapter. And then those chapters are almost word for word repeated. God said, do this, do that, do this, do that. And then in the uh, subsequent chapters, it was Israel did this. Israel did that. Word for word, Israel was faithful to build the tabernacle just as God had commanded them. And we see in Exodus 40, verse 33, it says, so Moses finished the work. Here at the base of Mount Sinai, Moses finished the work. Israel completed the tabernacle. All that God had called them out of Egypt for was complete. Here is the place of worship with God. But we come to the end, and there's a problem. There's a problem. Yes, the cloud comes. God comes down into the tabernacle. But in verse 35, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. Here's the problem. Israel could not come to worship God in his house. The whole point was worship, but now they can't even worship because God's presence is so glorious, so great, that they can't come into his presence. So here is the big problem. Israel cannot even come into God's presence. God's mediator, Moses, couldn't even come into God's presence. This cloud is a theme throughout Scripture in the Old Testament. And this cloud isn't just symbolic for God's presence, but it represents his very presence, his covenantal, redemptive presence. We see it back in the Abrahamic covenant where this smoke, this cloud, passes through the pieces, the animals, God ratifying his covenant with Abraham. At Mount Sinai, the cloud encompassed the mountain. The people were terrified and they said, God, don't speak to us, just speak to Moses, lest we die. We see the cloud again here at the tabernacle where God is, his very presence, his covenantal presence is here. It came in the temple when the temple was erected later. We see it in Isaiah, in the heavenly throne room, the cloud of God's very presence. This picture at the end of Exodus is a picture of an enthronement enthronement ceremony. An enthronement of the covenant Lord after his conquest and construction of his dwelling place with his people. But the cloud of God is lethal. We read in Leviticus 16, the center, the most important chapter in all of Leviticus. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil. This is the inside of the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. It says, don't come in before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. God is identifying explicitly with his presence being here with the cloud. And he warns later, do not come near lest you die. And it appears here at the end of Exodus, Moses was trying. It seems like Moses was trying to go in, but he knew it was too terrifying Whatever it was, he knew he could not enter lest he die. This is the presence of God. This is his presence in his holy place. We ask, what good is a tabernacle if you can't go in? What good is this if you cannot even 
know or worship God. The question for us is, how do I meet with God? How do I dwell with him? Well, we have the problem for Israel. They constructed the tabernacle. They cannot even enter to worship. But we can also zoom out here and see this is a problem for all of humanity. Because Israel is a microcosm of the problem that all of us face. We can go back to the beginning, to the Garden of Eden, where God created Adam and Eve and put, him, put them in his garden, his temple garden. The Garden of Eden was a temple, effectively, because this is where God would come to dwell with his people. That's what a temple is. That's what the tabernacle is, where God comes to meet, to dwell, to commune with his people. But Adam and Eve were exiled from that garden. Adam and Eve were cast out of that garden. Adam and Eve were cast out from communion with God, from knowing him, from worshiping him in his presence. Why? Because of their sin. Because they rejected him. Because they turned against them. They were now defiled. They were now impure. They were now unclean and could not be in the presence of God. They weren't cast out of the garden just because God didn't want them to eat the good food anymore. God wanted them to work hard now with the thorns and the thistles uh, to, to, to grow good fruit. No, it was because that was God's presence and they couldn't be near God. Eden was God's dwelling place with man. Eden was the temple and so man must be exiled. See a couple of interesting connections here. Remember when Adam and Eve were exiled, who then guarded the entrance to Eden? God set cherubim there. Angels, heavenly angels, to guard the entrance. And if we went back through Exodus, we would see that when God instructed Moses to build the tabernacle, what was placed on the curtain in front of the Holy of Holies? Cherubim. This is my presence. And we saw, we read earlier in, in Isaiah, who is it that's encircling the throne? It's the cherubim. The cherubim indicate the presence of God. They guard the presence of God. And we see this over and over and over through Scripture. That Eden represents the dwelling place with God. The tabernacle is a dwelling place with God. So it caused a rejection from Eden was man's sin. The reason Moses could not walk into God's presence was his sin as well. He was defiled. He could not enter a holy God's presence. Exodus 38 emphasizes the glory of God with this cloud. His purity, his perfection is too great for impurity to even look upon it. Sin cannot be in his presence without being immediately obliterated. Adam and Eve's problem was Israel's problem, and this is our problem as well. Because we often neglect the seriousness of our sin, how it separates us from God, how we cannot commune with God. We take for granted the fact we come into his presence, his covenantal presence in this place because of Jesus Christ. We take that for granted. And Leviticus is showing us you can't take it for granted. The blood of Jesus Christ is absolutely necessary for you to come to God. But the glory of God and our sin cannot mix. Man is hopeless trying to enter the presence of a glorious God in any other way but through blood, as Leviticus shows us, specifically through the blood of Jesus Christ, as we're shown in the fullness of God's revelation. And so we have this problem for Israel. Not even Moses can enter the tabernacle to worship and meet with God. 
So the question is, how do we come into the tabernacle? But we can zoom out in the problem for all of humanity. We have been cast out of Eden, God's presence. Is there any way to come back to God? And so we come to Leviticus's solution. The solution that will be unpacked over the coming weeks. But we'll look at the the major strands, the major themes that are coming to us in Leviticus. And essentially it's this. We need to be cleansed with blood and then propelled to walk in holiness before a holy God. We need to be cleansed with blood and then we'll be propelled to walk in holiness before a holy God. Leviticus is a fascinating book. It was given by God to Moses and all the people of Israel at the base of Mount Sinai. Again, they had just completed the tabernacle and God speaks to Moses from the tabernacle as Moses was standing outside of it to give them all of the regulations and instructions that Leviticus contains. The Hebrew uh, title of this is simply the first words in Hebrew for the book. That's usually how Hebrew named it, particularly the first five books of the Bible. It was just the first word in Hebrew. But then in Greek, they began to call it in Greek of the Levites. And so that's how we get the name Leviticus today. Even though the Levites are only mentioned four times in the book, it's probably better to think of this as a a book about the priests, not just the, the Levites generally, but particularly the priests who minister to God. But even more than that, this is for all of God's people. This is a worship manual for Israel to know how to approach a holy God, what they're to do, the blessing God bestows upon his people. So I think we would be wrong to think this book was merely for priests of the Old Testament. It has no relevance for us today because it was intended for all of Israel to know how to come to God in worship. And of course, we must see Leviticus through the lens of Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews is basically a commentary on Leviticus and how Jesus is better than everything we read in Leviticus. Jesus fulfills everything that we see in Leviticus. It's all about Christ. Even though the laws of Leviticus were, were intended to be uh, practiced by Israel in perpetuity, it was fulfilled. It was completed in the final sacrifice. Yes, they depended upon the, the, the blood of, of bulls and goats, but they did that weekly. They did that daily. But we have a once for all sacrifice in Jesus Christ. I think the outline of the book emphasizes the solution. We see the first 15 chapters are really answering the question, how do I approach God? How do I come into his presence? We'll see the five sacrifices. We'll take a sermon on each sacrifice because they each flesh out different aspects of the the purity, the cleanliness that we need to enter God's presence. And then there's purification laws, cleanliness codes, what to eat, what to not eat to be purified ceremonially to enter God's presence. So this is chapters 1 through 15. And the climax of the entire book is in chapter 16, the Day of Atonement. This is the pinnacle, the pinnacle demonstration of dealing with the sin and impurity of all of God's people by a vicarious sacrifice. In fact, this is the center of the whole Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible are are collected as a whole. There's five books. Leviticus is the middle book. And the middle theme in the middle book is the Day of Atonement, the central day in the life of Israel. 
The most important thing that God was emphasizing to them was this Day of Atonement. And then after the Day of Atonement, we see the rest of the book, chapter 17 through 27. How do we commune with God in light of being purified by the blood? And so there's laws about feasting, how to obey God, thanksgiving at the end. So there's this overall approach to God in the first half of the book, the Day of Atonement and the Pinnacle, and then we see communion with God, how it works out in light of this atonement in our lives. One of these big themes is God's holiness, how it interacts with our sin. God's holiness, the necessity of a sacrifice. God's holiness and and worship. We come with fear and trembling into his presence because he is holy. The, The idea of holy time, time set apart for the worship of God. Atonement. The joy, the feasting in God's presence. All of these themes revolve around God's holiness. One of the major verses is from Leviticus 19, verses 1 and 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Holiness is central. So we'll be looking at this week by week as we work through this book. So how does this, though, apply to us? If Jesus has fulfilled it, why does this matter? Well, all of these realities, these are God's word, his eternal word now for us to edify us even now, even if we're not under the Levitical law for our worship today. But we need to understand these are realities meant for Israel to grab hold of by faith. The sacrifices were not just rote things to do without thinking but they were designed to engage the faith of those offering the sacrifices to show them that God is the one who cleanses and makes his people holy. And for us, these are pictures that we can look back upon that show us a more glorious, a more gracious, a more loving Jesus than we've ever imagined before. We don't understand the work of Jesus if we don't understand Leviticus. It helps us dive more deeply into who he is and what he's done. It shows us Christ through promise and typology. So our approach, as I mentioned, we will have 16 sermons or so, reserve the right to change that, to hit the highlights through this book. Again, we're not going to go verse by verse, but we'll hit the highlights. Why are these kinds of laws in here? Why are food codes in here? What does this tell us about the holiness of God in the Christian life? But we must remember, as we set the stage for this entire book, we stand outside of God's presence on our own. We are like Moses, who are looking upon the the tabernacle, this tent of meeting where God has said, I'm going to come and meet with my people. We're standing on the outside, unable to come in on our own. And like Moses, God is there, but you cannot enter in. On your own, you will be struck down if you enter God's presence. Like Adam and Eve, you've been cast out of the garden, away from communion with God. This is what you were created for, is to know your creator, to know his love, and to know the joy of his presence. But you don't have it by nature. On your own, you don't have it. On your own, you are left pining for it. This book shows us Christ. 
that you need Christ. Without Christ, you will be struck down by a holy God. Without Christ, you will not be purified. Without Christ, you carry your own sin into eternity to be judged by a holy God. So look to Christ, the sacrifice for you. And of course, spoiler alert, we can enter the tabernacle. We can enter the temple when we are purified by the blood of Jesus Christ. And all of this shows us a picture of the heavenly temple that we await. That place for eternity where we will dwell in God's presence. Oh, how glorious it will be. Purified by the blood as we worship our God for eternity. Let us look to him in prayer. Our gracious God, we are thankful that even though on our own we cannot come into your presence, you have given us a sacrifice. You've given us Jesus Christ himself. Oh Lord, we pray that you would grant us faith to see him and to be cleansed by his blood. Oh Lord, help us more and more to grow in our faith, that we might grow in holiness as a result, that we might honor you, glorify you, and commune with you all the days of our life. And especially on that day when Christ returns, makes us completely perfect and holy on the inside and out. We would dwell with you in your heavenly abode for all of eternity. May Jesus come quickly, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Thank you.